Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 15, The Army That Conquered the World. Last time, I covered the royal family as it stood following the death of Cyrus the Great. The empire is sort of split between Cambyses and Bardia. Bardia has some sort of independent control over eastern Iran and central Asia, and Cambyses is the new king of kings, the Kashayathea Kashayathianam ruling over his father's empire. Several of Cyrus's daughters and a couple of other noble women were married to Cambyses at some point to consolidate power around one branch of the royal family. When we left off, Cambyses was preparing for an invasion of Egypt. Egypt was the last kingdom that had any major role in the region, and would be the first test to see if Cyrus the Great was a fluke, or if the empire he had built could continue to expand in his absence. But before we embark on that last major conquest of the Tespid kings, I want to break down exactly how they did all of this conquering. This episode is appearing now because the composition of the army has changed as the empire grew, but the basic organization and structure probably did not. However, that will change along with so many other things after Darius is in power, so it seems like an appropriate time to address the first phase of Persian military development on its own. I didn't want to discuss it too early and detract from the narrative around Cyrus, now that we're heading back into another wave of narrative-focused episodes, it seems like a good time. Plus, this episode is now in the perfect place to highlight the innovations associated with Cambyses rather than his father. So, what exactly did the army of Cyrus the Great look like? An army that was able to conquer most of the known world. As you should all be familiar with at this point, the answer is kind of unclear, and we have to work back from a little bit later in the timeline. We'll see later on that Darius started warring basically from the second that Bardia stopped breathing. Over the course of his reign, the army probably was restructured a bit, but not too radically. So we can take some of the information from early in Darius's reign and fairly safely project it back to Cyrus and Cambyses. Let's start with the macro point of view, the structure of the whole Achaemenid military, and work our way down to the individual people and units in that structure. Modern warfare, as I think we all know, generally has three theaters, air, water, land. Of course, in the ancient world, despite some recent comments, there was no air force, so that basic breakdown of ancient warfare was just land and sea, the army, and the navy. Unless, of course, you're a mostly land-bound kingdom, and then you probably don't have a navy. That was the case for Cyrus the Great, 
the closest the Persians of Cyrus's time had to a navy might have been a few river boats, and these most likely would have been crewed by mercenaries hired from areas of the empire with rivers. By the end of this episode, Cambyses will change that. But first, let's talk about the armies. Before we can talk about the specifics of divisions and units, I think we need to know who made up these armies. Who were the actual people, almost universally young men, who fought the great king's wars? The basic answer is levies, troops raised from the general populace and nobility as needed based on their legal obligations to someone higher up in the social hierarchy. Basically, ancient Persia operated on what we might view as a proto-feudal system. The king, of course, was on top, and then below him were the nobles, sometimes called azada. Within that arrangement, there would have been lesser and greater nobles, probably subservient to other nobles, save for the highest-ranking families. Those would be branches of the royal family, satraps, and maybe a few select favorites of the king. Below the nobility were laborers, farmers, merchants, and artisans, the common people, generally called bandika. Who exactly they owed their allegiance to isn't always clear. Of course, if you're a farmer, you probably serve some local landlord or governor, but we don't have a great picture for what the equivalent system was in cities during the Persian period. Regardless, when the King of Kings called for an army, his subordinates were required to gather a certain number of their subordinates and marshal them as an army. At least that's how it worked in Persia and Media. So when Cyrus first rebelled against Astyages, he would have called on the local nobility in Anshan and Persia to raise a force for him, and then he absorbed Media, then he would have called on similar obligations from the Median nobility like Harpagus. As the empire expanded, though, things were at least a little bit different. Lands and peoples were organized into similar sort of feudal structures according to different local customs in each of the newly conquered territories. And as I've previously discussed, each new satrapy or tribute-paying kingdom had its own treaty and arrangement dictating how much would be sent to the great king. These treaties would also cover troop levies that each satrapy would be expected to send with the army. The Persian or Median satrap would be in charge of making sure that the local army was raised and sent on to the king, but that would be in accordance with whatever the terms of the surrender to Cyrus were, rather than pre-existing obligations. I'll start by describing the organization of levies from Persian and Median territory and Mesopotamia, where the system of nobles and levies was implemented rather quickly because of the existing structures from Assyria and Babylon. In the rest of the empire, it was probably pretty similar, but with more local flavor. The only major difference was that Persian nobles were now on top of the food chain above the local elites. If you've studied military history in any capacity from about 2500 BCE to the World Wars of the 20th century, you should be at least a little familiar with the two basic divisions of land army for most of recorded history. That would be the infantry, those soldiers who stand on their own two legs and fight on the ground, and the cavalry, soldiers mounted on horseback in battle. It's unclear how exactly the Persian army was organized in Cyrus's time. By Darius, it's clear that they had implemented a decimalized system that applied to both infantry and cavalry. Just so that I can have names for the different commanders and units, I'll make use of those decimal systems here. Just keep in mind that the system may not have been fully developed at this actual point in the narrative. The largest subdivision of the army was a group of 10,000, called a Bivarabom, literally a noun meaning a group of 10,000. It's often compared to a division in modern armies. 
Within the Bivera bomb, there were 10 Hazara bomb, each consisting of 1,000 soldiers. This is often compared to a modern regiment. These regiments were the standard level of organization and are literally called a standard in Aramaic documents. These two largest groups could contain both cavalry and infantry, apparently, while the smaller groups would be basic operating units for each type of fighter. Within a thousand-man Hazara bomb, there were ten Satabam of a hundred, and beneath the Satabam were groups of ten called Dathaba. Each level of organization had a commander whose title aligned with the number of soldiers under his command. So the commander of ten thousand was called a Baivara Patish, the commander of a thousand was a Hazara Patish, and so on down the line to a commander of ten men called a Datha Patish. A Bavara Patish would always have been Persian or a Mede, and Babylonians could sometimes be found as one of the Hazara Patish. Lower than that, the commander would probably have been someone from the same background as the troops under their command. Starting with the infantry, then. This is, without a doubt, the segment of the Persian army that we know the most about, both because it features most prominently in surviving artwork and because it made up the bulk of the army. By the Persian period, the archer had been the standard unit of infantry for centuries in the Near East. The Assyrians had perfected a system of paired archers. One soldier would hold a shield to protect both himself and an archer behind him, while the active archer would fire from behind the coverage of that shield into the opposing army which was probably doing the same thing for the most part. Under the Persians, this system took a step forward, replacing the traditional archer pair with soldiers called Sparabara. The Spara was a tall rectangular shield, probably made from wicker, either exposed or wrapped in leather. Sparabara literally means Spara bearer, a shield bearer. The front line of the Dathaba, or possibly even several lines of Asadabam, would raise their spara to defend the whole group of archers behind them, whether that was one or many. In some situations, though, the shields themselves would be planted in the earth and the whole unit would loose arrows from behind that makeshift wall. The Datha Patish, the unit commander, would almost always be in that front line of shield bearers. In addition to archers, the Persian army also deployed slingers behind the line of sparabara. These were soldiers equipped similarly to archers, but rather than a bow and arrow, they made use of a sling and bullets. I'm not jumping ahead to guns all of a sudden, but I am talking about lead. Slings were simple weapons dating far back into prehistory, basically a rope or pair of ropes with a pouch in the middle. A stone or lead projectile, often called a bullet, would be placed in the pouch and spun. When one end of the rope was released, it would send the bullet flying over the battlefield to the enemy. Much later in the narrative, we'll see how the Greek Xenophon reported that Persian slingers did significant damage to his fully armored Greek force. If the enemy reached the Persian line, the Sparabara were suddenly tasked with using their shields to defend their comrades as they prepared for hand-to-hand -hand combat. In the event that this line was breached, the Persian archers could go on the defensive. To fend off these attackers, the archers would have been equipped with hand-to-hand -hand combat weapons like swords and axes. The second unit of infantry, which typically made up less of the army, were spearmen. Contrary to the popular imagination and romanticized ideas about swords, spears were the primary weapon of war in much of the world before the coming of gunpowder. In the Near East, spear formations dated back to the Sumerians and probably earlier into prehistory. 
Persian spearmen carried a spear about six feet or two meters in length alongside a shield. This would have been the more active offensive that charged into the enemy line. They would push against that line probably after cavalry or archers had disrupted their opposition and try and break the enemy force. This would either yield the battlefield to the victorious army, or if the Persians were feeling particularly merciless, they could chase after the retreating force and kill them as they ran. It would be soldiers like this that tried to push through the enemy equivalent of either themselves or the Sparabara. The most famous infantry of either category must have been the Immortals, or Athanatoi in Greek. Their title derived from the consistency of their numbers. The King of Kings had 10,000 Persians selected to serve as the hard core of his army, and when one of them fell in battle, a new Persian soldier would be raised up to replace him in the elite unit. In other Bivarabam, it seems that the numbers were allowed to dwindle for a time, leading to Hazarabam of only hundreds, or Satabam of only dozens, but the immortals were always supposed to be 10,000 strong. From ancient descriptions, it seems that this was an infantry force primarily. Herodotus, when describing the Persian army on the march to Greece, talks about what might have been a cavalry component to the immortals, but just as easily could have been a separate premier and professional cavalry unit in addition to the famed 10,000. Within the ranks of the immortals were spearmen, sparabara, slingers, and archers. Essentially, they could function as their own army or be dispersed to reinforce other contingents. In addition to immortals, the spearmen in their ranks were also called apple bearers, for the shape of the silver counterweight on the blunt end of their spears. It is unclear how codified and official all of the traditions surrounding the immortals were under the Taspid kings. Cyrus, or at least Cambyses, seems to have had a special force of soldiers of some kind. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. But it's possible that some of these traditions were finalized and made official under Darius and his son Xerxes. 
Speaking of Darius, that actually brings me to another set of famed and elite Persian soldiers that certainly do seem to have existed under the Taspids, because we know that Darius served in this unit under Cambyses. These were the spear bearers, or Arshtibara, Arshti being the old Persian word for spear. They were a Hazarabam of a thousand men from the Persian nobility who were selected to serve the king. It's unclear if they were part of the immortals, and there were 9,000 soldiers drawn up from the Bandaka commoners, or if the spear bearers were another separate entity entirely, and the great kings actually had 11,000 specially selected soldiers under his command. Regardless, the Arshtibara were distinguished from the general mass of the immortals by the golden apples at the base of their spears, rather than silver like all the rest. The king's spear bearers were the nobles chosen specifically to be closest to the king, a role that the future king Darius holds under Cambyses at this point in our narrative. A selection of both Arshtibara and immortals attended the king at court, where they were permitted to wear the same Persian-style robe as the king himself. In Persian artwork, they also wear golden bracelets and earrings that probably wouldn't have been worn on the battlefield, though the Greeks do report that the Persians wore gold torques and bracelets even in combat. One overarching theme of the Persian infantry, even the immortals and the spear bearers, was that they were all very lightly armored, if at all. Many of the archers wouldn't have even had layers of stiff linen fabric to act as a protective layer. The same cannot be said for the cavalry, at least by the time we reach the wars in Greece, when we see depictions of Persian cavalry warriors with mail armor on the outsides of their legs as well as on their torsos. Despite that, though, all of the early Persian cavalry is still what we would call light cavalry. There was little armor for the horse itself, and relatively little for the rider, at least compared to what would come to define heavy cavalry in the future. So for the time being, the Persians were confined to the light version. Despite the light equipment, and sort of because of it, these were incredibly versatile troops. They could be used for tasks that required speed, like carrying messages, reconnaissance and scouting ahead of the main army, ambushing enemy contingents, or patrolling an area under Persian control. They could also be used with extreme force to charge into an enemy line, either to smash into an infantry group and break up their cohesion, or to engage enemy cavalry and prevent them from charging the Persian lines. In addition to lances and charging, the Persian cavalry force would have included mounted archers. If not pulled from the Persians themselves, these riders could be recruited from the Saka or other steppe peoples famed for their skills at mounted archery. Following the standard tactics of horseback archery, they would ride in toward the enemy firing arrows and then ride back out of range of enemy volleys or move to no longer be in the path of oncoming arrows. Either type of cavalry was well suited to the tactic of a feigned retreat, in which the riders pretended to run from their enemies, leading their pursuers away from a main force and then turning suddenly and quickly to attack the soldiers who had followed them. This was a favorite tactic among steppe peoples like the Saka for centuries, both before and after the Persian period. Horses were, as they still are, expensive to care for and maintain. Horses suitable for warfare, even more so, and then you have to multiply that for the multiple horses needed to act as spares and remounts for the cavalry riders. As a result, the cavalry were both limited in number and largely confined to the nobility who could afford to maintain their own horses. 
Both the infantry and the cavalry were supplemented with warriors from the subjected cultures in the many satrapies of the empire. Many troops of both the cavalry and infantry seem to have been pulled from other Iranian cultures and tribes in eastern Iran, Central Asia. Generally, the tactics seem to have been the same, but the dress and exact designs of the equipment were sometimes a little different. The same is true of troops from Mesopotamia and Syria, where similar tactics had been in use and developing for centuries. Cultures in more distant satrapies might have provided more unique and striking soldiers. Lycia in Anatolia famously provided troops in Greek-style bronze armor armed with sickle swords, and the Greek cities of Ionia and Caria would have provided troops in the proto-hoplite style of heavy infantry. The Lydians famously had their own and very effective style of cavalry, and cavalry recruited from the steppe tribes could vary dramatically sometimes. Some even used lassos as a weapon to snare enemy riders and horses. As more territories were incorporated, more tactics were brought in, and Persian commanders and generals must have developed tactics to suit those diverse resources. Those two categories, infantry and cavalry, could account for most of the soldiers fielded in Europe and Asia ever recorded. However, we're actually still in the period of warfare where there was a third group in the land army, in the form of chariots. They are probably the least important individual unit of the military at this point, but also the one I think people probably don't really understand. I think that when most people think of chariots, they probably picture the light little cart with just enough room for the driver that was pulled by two horses in ancient Rome, either for racing or for transporting a triumphant emperor. These were not the chariots used by Persians in war. If you picture something more warlike, most people probably think of the slightly wider cart, also with two horses, used by the Egyptians with a driver and an archer. That's a little closer, but still not what the Persians were using. By the end of the Neo-Assyrian Empire and into the Persian period, War chariots were big, heavy, and terrifying. The things were like horse-drawn tanks. Hold a heavy wooden cart that acted as a mobile archery platform crewed by four men. One, of course, was the driver, and next to him would have been an archer to rain arrows as these huge intimidating structures sped across an open battlefield. On the outside edges were usually two more men with shields to protect the archer and the driver both of whom would have been tempting targets for enemy archers and slingers trying to stop the chariot. For just that reason, at least the driver and archer were also often armored in similar ways to the cavalry riders as a further layer of protection against enemy missile fire. The Persians added a further element to their war chariots by inventing their infamous scythed chariot. What exactly that means is unclear, but the general idea is that they had blades protruding from the spokes of the wheels, so that if they plowed into an enemy line, they would cut up anyone standing too close. By the late Assyrian period, chariots were already archaic and quickly losing their traditional roles on the battlefield, but the Persians retained them as tools of terror and intimidation. Even if a commander logically knows that the chariots can't do much damage if they barrel into the front line, and that their own spearmen could probably kill the horses before they got very far, that didn't stop men from breaking and running away when four armored horses came barreling at them full speed, pulling a huge cart manned by three warriors with spikes spitting out of the sides. 
I imagine they were a truly terrifying thing to see on the battlefield, especially with the scythe design as a new feature. Smaller chariots, more like those seen in Rome and Bronze Age Egypt, would also have been employed, just not for direct combat. Command chariots were used to carry both the great kings themselves and their generals when the army was on the move, or when they needed to move with speed up and down the lines of a large pitched battle. Here's the thing, though. Quite a lot of Cyrus's conquering was not in the form of pitched battles, where all of the aforementioned tactics could be properly displayed. A lot of it was in the form of sieges, where the enemy locked themselves behind city walls and tried to wait out the attacking Persian army. Fortunately for the Persians, their Assyrian predecessors had gotten siege warfare down to a set routine of tactics. Of course, a major part of a siege is just surrounding the city and making sure nothing gets in or out unless it benefits the besiegers. Cavalry could be useful in this regard for going after any scouts or messengers trying to move outside. The infantry could sometimes be put to work diverting or damming a city's water source, but of course the goal was always to try and get over the walls or through the city gates as quickly as possible. For that, the Assyrians had developed two pieces of technology that the Persians adopted and implemented. The first was the siege tower. These were tall wooden structures on wheels. They were intended to bring the besieging archers to a height where they could contend with the defenders on the city walls or just shoot into the city itself. They also carried a water supply that could be used to douse any flames if the defenders tried to burn the wooden behemoth. Protruding out in front of the tower were several arms, really pools, sometimes with hooks, that would be used to try and pry apart or break up the individual stones of the city wall and create a breach that the Persians could enter through. If the tower wasn't tall enough on its own, dirt would be piled against the city walls to create a ramp for the tower. If the tower wasn't available or ready yet, Herodotus suggests that the Persians would just build their ramp all the way up to the top of the wall and climb over it that way. The second piece of major siege technology was a huge battering ram attached to a frame with ropes, so that it could be pulled back and allowed to swing and smash into the gate in an attempt to knock them in. Both siege weapons were fairly effective and had to be heavily defended when in use because they made huge, obvious targets for the defenders on the walls. Another common tactic would be to mine under the walls, essentially digging a tunnel from the siege line and into the city. This was a dangerous job to have as, without knowing exactly where they were trying to dig to, the tunnels were prone to collapse. But if they were successful, they had the opportunity to try and sneak through the city and throw the gates open from the inside. In addition to the more impressive feats of siege engineering, there were also an assortment of ladders and ropes in use to try and scale the walls when the time came to make a concerted attack on the city. Between siege tactics like this and the pitched battle tactics that I described earlier in the episode, the Persians were able to invade and conquer most of the surrounding lands. But islands off the coast remained elusive, and Egypt could not be taken without a navy. So, on to one of Cambyses' two really major contributions to the Persian legacy, the other being the conquest of Egypt itself. In preparation for his Egyptian campaign, Cambyses ordered a navy to be assembled. The bulk of this responsibility fell on the Phoenician cities with their long histories of maritime trade and Mediterranean dominance. The Ionian and Carian Greeks in Anatolia, also well known for their seafaring expertise, were called on to build ships for the King of Kings as well. 
The crews of these ships came from both the provinces where they were built and provinces very far away. Mesopotamian riverboat crews and Central Asian tribes who operated on the rivers there in the Caspian Sea were also sometimes recruited to cruise ships in the Mediterranean. Fortunately, for my sake explaining all of this, both the Phoenicians and Greeks used the same style of ships. The first, largest, and most significant was the trireme. These were ships with three rows of oars on either side in addition to a sail. They were crewed by about 200 men, most of them rowers, but also a crew of experienced sailors and officers to direct the ship as a whole and usually a set of marines, both spearmen and archers. The other ships were smaller versions of the same general concept. The bireme was of a similar design, but with only two banks of oars, and the much smaller pentaconter was usually just one bank of 25 oars on each side, meaning a total of 50 rowers. All three sizes had a ram attached to the front for plowing into enemy ships, either to break a hole in their side and cause them to sink, or to provide an easier avenue for the marines aboard the ramming ship to board the enemy vessel and fight hand-to-hand as if they were on land. If it was an option, ramming the stern, the rear of the ship, was a preferred tactic because it was harder to defend. Trying to get the opposing ships to catch fire was also a tactic, but one that came with the risk of inadvertently torching your own ship. The other crucial role of the Persian navy was to carry supplies when a large land army marched near the coast because ships were just capable of carrying more than the regular baggage train of camels and horses. That would prove something incredibly valuable to the conquest of Egypt. And really, there you have it. The Persian military, at least as it stood in the late 6th century BCE. The Kings of Kings commanded an elaborate structure that was building on centuries of Near Eastern military tactics and still incorporating the wildly different tactics and skills of different subject peoples in Persia's young empire. All of it will be deployed in full force for the next episode as Cambyses invades and conquers the land of the pharaohs. And that is where we will pick up next time. For more information about the show, all of the places you can listen, now including iHeartRadio and all of your other favorite podcast apps, and a family tree for the Persian royal family, check out our website at historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or whatever app it is you're using. And if you want to help the show grow, there is nothing that works better than sharing it around on social media and telling your friends. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corian's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corian.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corian.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.